Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast. My name is Thomas Frank, and this is a show that helps you become a more effective student. And in this episode, we're tackling a topic that I love, I've been curious about for a really long time, and that is... How the heck do you become a published author? An author that gets paid to write books, that has books on bookstore shelves. People can literally walk into a Barnes & Noble and buy your book off of a shelf. This has been a dream of mine for a long time. It's still not something that I have achieved. I have written and self-published a book. Maybe you've read it. It's called 10 Steps to Earning Awesome Grades. And it's done pretty well, but it's not on bookstore shelves. Luckily, I've got friends who do have books on bookstore shelves. I've talked to some of them on this podcast before, but not on this particular topic. So today I've got my friend T. Michael Martin on the show. Now, Mike is the author of one published book, and that is soon to go up to two because on April 19th of this year, he is releasing a book called Mr. Fahrenheit, which is described as Super 8 meets Friday Night Lights. Basically, a group of high school kids accidentally shoot down a flying saucer and... Well, stuff happens from there. I can tell you he sent me an advanced copy and I have read part of it so far and I'm really liking it. The dialogue especially is really cool and really well written and uh, I'm excited to dig into more of it on my road trip tomorrow. But Mike has been a friend of mine for probably about a year now because he is one of the two people who runs the YouTube channel How to Adult in addition to being an author. And that channel is amazing. I'll have it linked up in the show notes. You should definitely check it out if you need tips on how to navigate adult life. And I think all of us do. Um, I've written a few videos for them. I've even been on the channel once. But Mike and I have become good friends over the intervening years since I found the channel and started working with them. And today we're going to dig into all the questions I have for him on what the heck it takes to become a published author. So that means Uh, How do you get an editor? How do you get an agent? What the heck is a query letter? Should you write the book in full before you try to find an editor or a publisher? Or should you just have a like an idea and a book proposal? I don't know. So I'm going to ask him all these questions. Hopefully you guys find this interesting. This is one of those episodes. It's kind of like a look like a peer into a a cool career or job path. And uh, Mike has been pretty darn successful in this area. Most books do not actually out-earn their advance. Basically, publishers give authors an advance lump sum of money so they can either quit their job or at least supplement it so they have time to write. And most books never sell enough copies to out-earn that advance. But Mike's book has, and it's very likely that his next book will do that and do even better. So Mike has experience in this area, and I'm really excited to pick his brain on this topic. Show notes for this episode can, as always, be found over at CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 102 link on the page. Man, we're past 100. It's still kind of crazy for me to think about that. But yeah, 102 link on the page. You'll find links to resources we mention, information sources for additional learning, and also links for rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes if you would like to support the show. And thank you if you do. It seriously helps a lot. So that's all I got for this intro. Let's get right into this interview with Mike. All right, Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah, dude, it's been a while since we talked, actually. 
Yeah, I think it was January or even earlier than that. I was looking through Skype. It's too long in any case. I think it's been too long. You've been hunkered down writing this book and well, getting it finished actually, right? Yeah, it's um, it was finished just in January, I think. That was when the final edits went in. And now uh, it's going to be coming out April 19th. Okay. So to give people some preface here, uh, you and I know each other through How to Adult, which is the channel that you co-host yes. with uh, Emma Mills. And I have written a few videos for you guys and then been on the channel once. Um, I remember I, I found your channel and I was like, this is what people need to graduate to from my channel. <laughs> well, thank so, you. Yeah, it was awesome. And um, just had a lot of fun just working on videos with you guys. But through stalking your other channel and your social media, I came to know that you are a fiction author and have a previously published book on bookstore shelves through a big publisher. And uh, you are coming out with your second one very soon, which is Mr. Fahrenheit. And I, I've read about 25 pages of it so far. It's awesome so far. I really Thank like you. the way you write dialogue. It's it's pretty excellent. Thanks and very I just, much. Yeah. And I was just curious about, you know, how does one go through the process of becoming a published author? I've heard that it's laden with 300 rejections and you have to write your book in a coffee shop in Scotland and get your character names off of gravestones to be yeah. successful. Basically, that's, you know, how you do it, right? Yes. End of <laughs> podcast. <laughs> You got it. I had a friend um, uh, who went to Scotland and actually went to that coffee shop where J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. And apparently there's a graveyard next to it with a bunch of tombstones that have like a bunch of character names from the books. That is awesome. Like I she had got no the, idea. Yeah, I guess she had gotten the names of some of the characters from that graveyard. So that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, I have not done that. Maybe I need to do that and I'll become a global phenomenon. Um, yeah. But um, the way I got published was kind of typical of how many people got published, which is that I wrote a novel that did not get me an agent. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote another novel, which I actually never even sent out to anybody. Um, I was just really kind of burnt out on the story. Okay. And then the third novel I wrote, I felt really good about. And um, would you like me to go into how I got an agent and everything? Yeah, definitely. I've got like a bunch of questions. And one of these is like, do you need an agent? And then how do you get one? So are uh, you telling me that Endgames was your third novel? Yes. So you have two that you just never like never let see the light of day pretty much? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Do you have any hope for like getting those out in the future? Or were they just practice runs? Um, I really like the premise of the first one. Mm -hmm. But it would need what they call in screenwriting a page one rewrite. Okay. Like every page would have to be completely redone. So, so um, a page one rewrite is more like just redo the whole story, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, it, you need to say bro because that is the encouragement you need to get through that terrible process. Come on, bro. <laughs> um, yeah. That, so with the end games, I had a weird feeling from the beginning um, when I started writing the book in 2008 that this one was pretty good. It was better than what I'd written. It was the best thing I could write at that time. Mm -hmm. And I got fairly lucky in the sense that I had a live journal and I posted some excerpts on that from the end games and uh, an editor from HarperCollins and an agent, like a legit agent, both saw that and emailed me and said, hey, can I see this when you're done? Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was a lucky break. But what I always tell people is that, like, for every lucky break, there's, like, 200 things that don't work out. 
that seems mm-hmm. so sure, and then they just fall apart because this person loses their job, they decide they want to move to Vermont and raise cows, or like you know, <laughs> like all these different things. Did um, you have an agent that did that or something? <laughs> no, but I've heard of it. <laughs> I was just in Vermont. It's beautiful there. I could see the temptation. Yeah, <laughs> I've always wanted to go in the fall. Like, I it's called leaf peeping. Leaf peeping. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's some but, interesting traditions in that area of the country. I've just been like researching all these cities and there's cities with weird drum circles in the middle of town and Vermont has cool traditions. That is awesome. Yeah. We have farmers markets. <laughs> that's not nothing. Hey, also Iowa has uh the best writing program in the world. So that's pretty cool. At University of Iowa? Or, yeah. Oh, sweet. Okay. I went to Iowa State, but I know people who definitely went to University of Iowa. Interesting. What how do you how do you uh quantify best writing program in the world is it like most um award-winning authors coming from it or yeah it has prizes it has a mystique like um one of my early mentors was this guy named joshua ferris Mm -hmm. who uh wrote a novel called then we came to the end which was an expanded version of some stories he'd written at iowa and that was his debut novel and he was a national book award finalist for that, and there are a lot of stories like that coming out of Iowa, from what I understand. Really? Well, you have a lot of time and not a whole lot of distractions to sit in the house and write books here. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I often um, thank myself, my past self, that I didn't go to college in California in an exciting place. Because I think going to college in Iowa was like, well, you might as well sit in your room and blog. You know, there's what yeah. you're going to do, go out into a cornfield. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I started vlogging um, in 2012 because mm-hmm. I was living in a town in West Virginia where I didn't really know anybody. I didn't have any friends and I was just lonely and I wanted to meet people on YouTube. So that has led into kind of a quasi professional career as a YouTuber at this point. Isn't it weird how that happens? It is very weird. <laughs> so very weird. Um, when did the end games get picked up? Not come out, but did it, when did it get picked up by the publisher? I'm not a fast writer. So those guys, uh, those gals emailed me in 2009. I'd been writing the book for about nine months. Okay. And it still took me another two years to finish the end games. Okay. Um, what happened then was I had spoken with this editor at HarperCollins who had also edited Divergent. So mm-hmm. she was really t- fantastic editor. And I emailed her and I said, hey, I'd love to, to send it to you, but can you recommend some agents for me? And she said, oh, sure. Why don't you send it to the agent of Veronica Roth, who wrote Divergent? And I said, OK. And that wound up being the woman I signed with. Um, I sent out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I sent out Mr. Fahrenheit or the end games on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And on Monday morning, I had multiple offers from agents. Um, and it usually takes wow. about six months to get an agent at least. So you wrote something good. And just for people who are curious, yeah. what is the end games about? It's about four hundred pages. Ha ha <laughs> rim shot. Don't even Bad need jokes. to do the sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> um it's about these two brothers, one is seventeen and one is five, trying to survive a zombie apocalypse in the mm. coal towns and capital of West Virginia. But it's not really a zombie novel so much as it is like a psychological thriller where mm. one of the threats happens to be zombies. Okay, gotcha. So it seems like you kind of did this in a roundabout way because the editor at a big publisher found this before you even needed to find an agent. Yes. Um, and, you know, it 
this is another example of those things where it's like, oh, it seems so certain, but then the lucky break didn't work out. That editor wound up passing on the end games. Oh, really? But, okay. Yeah, I still wound up at HarperCollins, but with another editor, another imprint. Okay, so this was back in 2009. So at the time, you had not started YouTube yet, and I'm guessing you basically didn't have much of a platform online at all at this time, right? No. Um, when I sold it, it was 2011, and mm -hmm. I don't. I think I had. I know I had Twitter, and that was about it. I had a live journal that I hadn't updated in a couple of years. Okay. But I no, I didn't know anything really about building an online platform at that point. So you basically literally no internet fame or internet cred at this point. Yet you were still able to get a book contract, which is really cool. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing is that, like, it always seems when you're an aspiring writer, it can sometimes seem like everybody is getting a book deal except you, and they all have these, like, special ways to get in, like, Snooki got a book deal, why can't I get a book deal? <laughs> but then Snooki's book comes out, and it doesn't sell that well. I'm not trying right. to disrespect her or anything, but that's, <laughs> like, a true story. Yeah. Um, it's ultimately about... Um, writing a really great read mm -hmm. and from there you can build an audience to help build some activation energy for the book mm -hmm. but you don't need to have a, a big youtube channel or anything like that to get a book deal okay interesting the only people i've talked to about a book publishing have been non-fiction writers who've written like mainly business books yeah so, that's different right yeah so this side of the equation it's like yeah, the publisher cares more about how many copies are you going to be able to drive? What's your platform? How uber famous are you? Do you know Marky Mark? That kind of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, we can get someone to ghostwrite it on the side if you need to, if you're too busy making money hand over fist. And it seems like with fiction, like that's not the case. A lot of fiction writers, it seems like they just started from nothing, but they were good writers. Yeah, I mean, uh, the kind of paragon of internet success right now is John Green. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he sold millions of books and a lot of people put it down to, well, he's a great marketer. But in fact, he's a great writer. And um, he was receiving critical acclaim, if not huge commercial success from the beginning. Mm. Um, his personality happens to translate and his uh, values happen to translate really well into YouTube. But, you know, I, I, I like the phrase that great marketing only makes a bad product fail faster. Yeah, it's true. That's actually really you know? insightful. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot because he gets it in front of so many people and then they're like, oh, my expectations were so high. Yeah. And this yeah. does not even come close to meeting them. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, uh, I think he did 150,000 pre-orders on The Fault in Our Stars. Mm -hmm. But if the reviews had stunk, like, he sold that many copies, but it wouldn't sell that many more. You yeah. Know? What a platform gives you is activation energy. Right. I'm trying to remember some of the things that have had so much hype and then didn't live up to them. I'm not sure about books, but I remember there was this game for the PS2 back in like 06 or something called Killzone. And mm -hmm. they, it was like they went crazy with the marketing. They were like, this is the Halo killer. It will dethrone Halo for best first person shooter ever. And then it came out and everyone was so excited. And it was like this totally mediocre, not that great game. And all the hype did at that point was hurt it more. Yeah. Because its own expectations come crashing down on it. There was a, I, I won't go into details, um, but there was a famous thing that happened a few years ago in young adult fiction where a, a debut author signed a million dollar book deal 
and then sold like below average numbers of copies. Um, and that that really haunts you. It's better to have low expectations and then outsell the expectations mm-hmm. um, than it is to, you know, you get a million dollars maybe, but you don't really get that much money. Like it, you get a lot of money, but it's not a million dollars. Yeah. And then you have to have that label on you for a while, you know? I think in almost any situation, it's kind of better to be able to come out of the gates and just blow everyone's expectations away. Yeah, un- under promise, over deliver. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my philosophy. I think it might be part of the reason why a lot of creative people have these really vibrant early careers and then kind of fade. Mm-hmm. Like there's a special kind of person that can keep the, the consistency and the quality up even as their expectations rise. They're able to kind of meet and match and grow. Yeah, I think every fiction writer I know has gone through some form of the sophomore slump psychological battle. Um, I certainly did with Mm -hmm. Mr. Fahrenheit. At one point I was like, well, I guess I'm just a one book guy. Guess I'm never finishing this thing. Um, Mm. But I have an editor who has always really believed in me and my work when I have not. And I'm so proud of Mr. Fahrenheit. It, I think it's a much better book than The End Games, although I still am very proud of The End Games. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reviews have been really pretty good. Um, like Booklist um, compared it to Ray Bradbury. And that was really amazing. Yeah. Now, for people who don't know, what's Mr. Fahrenheit about then? The kind of the. Oh, yeah. I, I always. About kind 500 of, pages? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, dad jokes. All right. Both ways. Um, it's. Uh, I always kind of jokingly describe it as Steven Spielberg's version of Breaking Bad. So (laughs) it's about these four high school seniors who one night accidentally shoot down a flying saucer, a UFO, and they decide to keep it a secret for one night only. And that's one bad decision that spirals into the next until (laughs) all these old tensions among the friends are surfacing and there are threats both alien and earthly coming at them. And it's just... It's kind of a tribute to 80s movies um, like The Goonies and things. It's just an, mm-hmm. it's a it's a young adult sci fi adventure that was purposely designed to be just so fun to read. Like yeah. I, I, that was my goal was I just want this to be so fun. I love books like that. I think uh, that immediately brings Ready Player One to mind. Where it's just, yeah. Just this fun book with all these 80s references. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie Chronicle? Um, yes. Yeah. I went to school with the star of that movie. Oh, for real? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It kind of reminds me, at least the, the beginning, uh, initial plot devices, kids find spaceship crashed. I don't think they shoot it down in that movie. It was a pretty good yeah. movie. Yeah, it was. Um, and there was a temptation, at least like in the very early stages of Mr. Fahrenheit, I thought, well, what if they shoot it down and then they get superpowers? <laughs> and then I was like, well, I guess I just saw Chronicle and that will never happen. So the plot... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't definitely going in that direction, but afterwards I was definitely not going in that direction. Mm-hmm. You know? That's a good question. When you get into the fiction world, I'm assuming you know a lot of authors like, uh, you, you know, John Green, um, yeah. through how to adult, or actually maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but how do you deal with the fact that plot lines and ideas, they kind of overlap between authors because we latch on to different tropes and. Um, you know, the similar kinds of stories. Like, do you worry about you're going to pick up somebody else's new book and then have your next book idea ruined by it being too similar? Um, I think, honestly, I don't worry about that as much as I worry about titles. And I know that sounds mm. silly, but, like, I started The End Games and then The Hunger Games came out. And oh. I started, 
Yeah, it, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And then I started Mr. Fahrenheit and Mr. Mercedes came out. And I was like, come on, very famous authors. I can't <laughs> handle this. Um, but I, I do worry sometimes about stealing, like unconsciously stealing plot lines. But um, the thing that I always try to do is take uh, a premise, like a story premise, and it presents itself with its genre attached to it. Mm. So like if I, for the end games, I was like, okay, well, this is a zombie story. It's going to have certain zombie things in it. But what I like to do is say, what if I took that premise and that genre and fused it with the structure of another genre? Mm. So like when I say that the end games is not really a zombie book, that's because it has zombies in it and it has the things people like about zombie stories in it. But it's really structurally not a zombie story as, you know, it's typically thought of. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess when you combine two different areas or two different ideas, you come up with something that has a lot less competition and is a lot more novel. That was yes. kind of the initial idea for my channel was I wanted to do school tips and college advice, but I also wanted to reference video games and, you know, make videos sort of like John Tron makes videos. So mash them together and hey, look, that doesn't exist. And I can stand out in that field a little bit better. Yeah, totally. Um, I think Steve Jobs said that uh, creativity is just connecting to previously unrelated ideas. Yeah, yeah. And then Einstein had some, he has some letter he wrote about combinatory thinking and how like all innovation comes through just the combination of previous ideas you've been exposed to. So I almost never worry about copying as long as I know I'm taking elements. Like if, it's pretty easy to know like you're lifting this verbatim versus this element from over here versus this element from over here. I'm going to mash them together and get something yeah. entirely new. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. So, man, that that problem you brought up about the titles, it just seems like an extended, even worse problem the, of the thing that YouTubers deal with. I don't know if you listen to any of CGP Gray's podcasts, but he's always yeah. worried about the fact that he has this like six week production timeline because he's a slow, very deliberate writer. And he's like, there's all these other cool education YouTubers. Somebody's going to come out with my idea as a video before I publish it. I'm like constantly afraid of that. And as an author, you're on like a two, three, four year timeline yeah. from conception to publishing. So I mean, that's got to be an even bigger worry. Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny. Like I won't write a story unless when I get the idea, I think, well, somebody had to do this already. Mm -hmm. Like, it's too obviously good. And I don't say that arrogantly, but like, if I get a great idea, like one that I want to dedicate two to three years to, or even more writing, um, I know that it's good if I can't believe my luck. Like, I can't believe I got to be the one to think of this, yeah. you know? So really good question on having a great story idea. Um, I'm curious as to your opinion on what you would tell a beginner who hasn't written a book before if they have a really good story idea should they just work on developing that one book over as many years as it takes a la pat rothfuss mm -hmm. or should they maybe set it aside go write short stories go do a tons of like workshops and kind of build their writing chops up to the point where they can really tackle that idea with a lot more skill well you know it's dangerous to get too enamored with any single idea mm. um, because Cormac McCarthy said that when you start a story, you always have this perfect thing in your head. 
and mm-hmm. it never matches it. Like when you're done, it's not the perfect thing that you'd hope for. Um, I myself kind of went through my self-education as a writer in a way that I don't necessarily recommend to other people, which is that I never was in a part of a critique group. I tried to be a couple times and I just, it wasn't a good fit. Mm. Um, I've never taken a book on or a, a class on writing fiction and I tried to go to grad school to get an MFA in creative writing, but I was rejected both times. So like really? there, yeah, yeah. Um, so and one, once it was uh, with a writing sample from the end games, <laughs> when the book was in people magazine, I was like for a second tempted to send them the copy of people magazine. Be like, Suckers. <laughs> That'd be pulling a Michael Jordan. It would be. Yes. <laughs> And for those of you who don't get that reference, there was some event that he like brought his old basketball coach to because apparently he was a total second stringer in high school. And he was like, all throughout high school, I was just focused on getting better than the first stringer guy. Look at me now. <laughs> kind of paints him in the, not as good of a light as I grew up with. but eh. Yeah. Well, hopefully. So did you just major in English? Did you major in English or am I just assuming that? No, I, I went to a regular universe, a state university, West mm-hmm. Virginia University for one year, and I was a religious studies major. Okay. And then I transferred to an arts conservatory, the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, and I got my BFA in filmmaking. Okay. So no traditional formal writing experience whatsoever or education at all. <laughs> No, I um I was always pretty good with words. Like if we had to write a poem or something in class, I would just be like, "Okay, guys, let, just let me do this." Um, <laughs> I was the opposite of the um people you made that video about that um you know lazy. Oh, the lazy group members. Yeah, <laughs> you were like the maybe like the overbearing group member. Just like I'll do it. Yeah, I was probably the overbearing group member. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll accept that. I had a tendency um, to be like that too. Yeah, I think it's it's. It's more, uh, at least for me, it was like an impatience thing. It was like, I can do this, so just let me do it. Yeah. Let's just get it done. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I was like, I know this is more efficient. Come on, just let me. But yeah, in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have done that so mm-hmm. much. Um, and now I've forgotten the question. What was the question I was answering? <laughs> um, Boy, what was the question? Because we got it all on, you know, education, formal education, stuff like that. I guess the original question was, you know, how... The question really has its roots in this idea of should you try to write the great American novel or make the great, you know, amazing video game you have in your head or whatever when you're a beginner? Because I think when you don't have the skills, it can be tempting to try to make this gigantic, huge project on which you never finish. You never ship your code or ship your text and get it out for critique. And you never let yourself grow because you're denying yourself that critical feedback stage. Yeah, I agree. Um, It's dangerous. You can tinker endlessly and just never get anything done. Um, I. It's it's so hard to know the difference between um, tweaking needlessly and improving as you gain more experience and you understand the story better and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I I just kind of use my own internal anxiety to know whether I should be moving on, whether this is actually something worth uh, worrying about. And, you know, even though I don't have a critique group, I do have a couple people that I trust to read my early stuff. Okay. And I think it's important for those people to like the kind of things that you're trying to do. 
Yeah. Because if they don't, then it's like it's kind of pointless. Like, um, if you're trying to be the next James Patterson and they only read Hemingway, it doesn't make any sense. They're not going to like your work, even if it's the best kind of James Patterson type novel. You mm-hmm. know? Did you have to do any kind of work to foster the type of feedback relationship with those people that you want? Because it can be so easy as a friend to just be like, oh, yeah, bro, this is really good. You know, awesome work. Like, how do you get people to say this section right here is crap? You know, you need to retone this. Like, Yeah. Um, well, for me, like, I've been kind of fortunate in that I have had mentors, even if I haven't had a critique group. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I've gotten those mentors is that I do something for them that they can't do for themselves. Like, I always tell people when you're trying to network, like, don't ask for anything. Mm-hmm. Just help them solve a problem for them. And then once you have an emotional rapport and emotional equity, then you can ask for something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't say that like cynically, but I, I think that it's really important when if you really want like a published author to read your work, like you should be valuable to them. You know, yeah. you shouldn't just ask because you don't really know what you're asking when you ask someone to read your book and critique it like that's that could take a week to really do, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so I had a mentor, uh, Joshua Ferris. I just met him through my producing professor in, uh, college. Then, um, I had this really wonderful mentor named S.A. Bodine. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was a young adult thriller author and I just met her through, uh, boards online and I like critiqued one of her books and the similar thing happened with, uh, probably the, the, most important mentor I've ever had, a woman named Sarah Czar. Mm-hmm. Um, she had, um, like, I just sent her a couple thoughtful messages. I'm not really expecting anything, but just, I knew she was going through a tough time at the time, and I felt bad because I really cared about her as an artist. And so I just wrote an email that I thought would hopefully be helpful. And we kind of, over the period of years, became friends, and then eventually she read my work. Oh, that's cool. So do you uh, also read their work as well? Is it kind of like a back and forth mentorship? Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. So I want to talk about the process of how you actually got your book published. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this was so this was your third book. So it definitely wasn't like you wrote something and immediately it gained success. It was like at least two other novels never saw the light of day. So you've been yeah. doing this for a while. So you post your writing samples on LiveJournal and is that really just how it happened? Like they just stumbled across them or did you do any work to share them online or send them to anybody? I I think I posted the links on some YA and children's publishing boards just in the writers. Like I think I was trying to get a critique group going or something. Okay. Um, But that's how they found those links. And um, yeah, then it was, you know, two years of writing kind of on my own. Okay. And um, I didn't wind up signing with the agent who saw it or with the editor who saw it, but it led me to the agent and editor that I really love, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think this is a good question to ask here. I know for nonfiction, I've been told that when you want to get an agent, you don't write the full book. You write mm-hmm. a book proposal. Uh, you write a query letter to the agent. You send it to them. I, I guess that's the order. You write the query letter. You get the agent. Then they have you write a proposal. It's maybe... 30 pages or something like that. They Mm -hmm. ship that out to publishers and hopefully you get a contract and then they'll work out like, here's what the book needs to be laid out. Here's how many pages we'd like. I would guess that it's pretty different in fiction though, right? 
Yes, um, that was a perfect explanation of how nonfiction works. Um, fiction, it's, it starts the same. You get a, um, well, actually, no, it doesn't start the same because you have to finish the book first. Okay. Um, you have to have get it the best you could, you can possibly make it on your own or with whatever support you have. And then you write a great query letter and you follow the agent's guidelines to the T and then, you know, hopefully you'll get an offer and you'll sign with an agent. You'll probably revise your book a little bit with your agent or maybe a lot, depending on what kind of shape it's in. Mm -hmm. And then the agent knows the editors in the industry and they know what those editors are looking for. And so they go out with uh, the manuscript on submission. Sometimes it's an exclusive submission like, hey, editor X, like you will have this book for 48 hours before we send it to anybody else and you have to make an offer during that time. Or they might go wide with it and go up to like 10 or more editors at once. Okay. So it's not like your agent is just taking the manuscript and walking to the HarperCollins building and kind of throwing it at the brick. It's like <laughs> no. the, the reason the agents are so useful is because they know individual editors who work at each of these companies. And I would guess it's the editor's job to sort of vet all these scripts that come in and then send the good ones up to the big wigs and say, hey, this will probably become a movie with uh, Jennifer Lawrence in it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So for a couple of questions here, then how do you go? How do you know who agents are? Like, how do you find an agent? And then what makes a great query letter that's going to impress them? Well, um, to find agents, you can do a, a few things. I found my agent in an unorthodox way. But if you really love a certain author, I would recommend going to the library, buying their books and, um, looking in the acknowledgments section mm -hmm. because a lot of times they will thank their agent. Oh, okay. And then you get their name and you can go to their website and figure out what kind of um, submission guidelines they have. Uh, another way is to use something called, I think it's agentquery.com. Okay. And that uh, will let you search by things like uh, genre and publishing category for people who are interested in different things. Gotcha. So for and, oh, writing a query letter, yeah. Yeah, query letters, um, you're not supposed to give away the whole plot. And like it's impossible to because it has to be a one-page letter. Mm -hmm. um, the goal is not to get them to sign you with the query letter. The goal is to get them to request your manuscript and read the whole thing, okay. which is what's really going to get you signed in any case, you know? Mm -hmm. These people must be reading ridiculous amounts of books. Yeah. Yeah, not my, all of them are going to be good. No. Oh, man. Um, my That's agent, like, job. it totally is. And I often get emails at, like, 3 in the morning from my agent. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. That <laughs> How are you awful. still awake? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, so they're, I'm guessing the kind of person who gets attracted to becoming a book agent is the kind of person who just wants to read books all the time. Yeah, loves books, <laughs> loves working with authors, loves the business. Um, it's, you know, publishing is very rarely will you get rich in publishing, but mm -hmm. um, it's, it is a very rewarding career in other ways. Mm -hmm. So you've got your query letter sent off to your agent. They like it. They say, send me the manuscript. You send them the manuscript. I'm guessing it's just a big word file at this point. Yeah. And you haven't even done any um, editing to justify the text or anything. So it's literally just... It looks basically like a school paper that I would type at this point. Yeah, or do you, you know, have a special writing tool or format. 
double spaced uh, one inch margins. Okay. Um, Times New Roman fonts, twelve, uh, and you know you want to have edited it as well as you can, like mm-hmm. so that it's as free as typos. It it flows as smoothly as it possibly can with your current powers. Okay. Speaking of editing, there's there are multiple types of editors, right? I can't remember yeah. the names, but I know there's like there's like the people who edit the book for is this a good story, and then there's the typo editors and grammatical editors and then i can't remember the name of it but there's the people who have to just make sure the text fits on each line and make sure the lines aren't like weirdly overspaced right yeah yeah um the one there's a copy editor which Mm -hmm. always sends back the most interesting notes like i mean that sincerely um (laughs) i remember in the end games i there's a scene where these two brothers are looking through an abandoned convenience store and there's a seven up clock on the wall that's frozen at a particular time. And I had seen that seven up clock. It's like from the seventies. I knew what it looked like. And I put seven up exclamation point. And the copy editor wrote back and said, actually, this clock didn't have an exclamation point. We should cut this. So it's that level of research they really? have to go into. Yeah. So the exclamation mark was kind of like a figment of your imagination. You just thought you saw it. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah. That's so cool. I went through the experience of doing the last, I think this is the last step of editing where you have to set the text to justified and then manually kern each line so it doesn't look weird. Because I mean, you've, you've probably justified text before in Word and it's just like some lines are too short to really stretch, but they're too long to fit on the, the previous one. So it just stretches the text out. Yeah. Um, I'm very grateful that I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> like I just write oh my it gosh. And correct it. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I didn't have to do it. I went through I think I saved and uploaded thirteen versions of my book to Create Space Editor before I finally stopped catching errors. Holy cow. And then and then I sent the book into Create Space, got it published, and there is actually one typo still. <laughs> oh man. But it's like on the last page of the book and I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll fix it someday. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to see how, just how many different weird jobs there are in a book. Like you'd think, oh, you write the book, you edit it for typos, that's it. But actually there's someone's job to go kern every line and make sure that uh, the text is justified, which I don't even think we think about when we read a book, the fact that the text is justified and it's straight lined on each side. Yeah, it's one of those professions where if you're doing it right, nobody notices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was funny. I, I I think I just did it on like on a whim. Like, what would it look like if I justify the text? And then I was like, oh, this would be a lot of work to fix. And then I just happened to open up a book on my desk, and I was like, wait, that is justified. Are all the books on my shelf justified? And I started <laughs> looking through them. I'm like, oh my god, they are. <laughs> I am not even close to done editing this book. <laughs> oh man. So that that is the the joy of self publishing is. You got to do that yourself or you got to pay someone to do it. Right. But with you, with a, going with a publisher, you don't. Though, uh, speaking of money, you do have to deal with the advance, right? And there can be some pitfalls with the advance, I've heard. Yeah. Um, are, are there any particular pitfalls you have in mind? What I've heard, like the big one that I've heard of is, uh, like you said, the books that are overhyped, authors will get a huge advance payment. And then they'll go write the book. And then 
the book is supposed to sell enough to cover your advance and only then do you start making royalties. Mm-hmm. But if you don't make your advance back, I'm guessing you have to pay back some of that advance, right? No. Oh, no. really? Yeah, you, it's it's um, you don't have to pay it back, but it does hurt you in the future. Like you'll probably get less of an advance in the future or if it happens a bunch of times, you might not be able to publish traditionally anymore. Okay, cool. So is there like, do you have negotiating power in the process of negotiating what the advance is? And would it ever be advantageous to be like, you guys are offering me too much? I'm sure that there are scenarios where that is the right thing. Um, and I don't know exactly. I can't think of any examples. But um, like if I if my next book, I'm working on the proposal for my next book right now. Mm-hmm. And if they offered me like a really large sum of money, I might be nervous and say, can you just take some of this and put it into a budgeting or uh, a marketing budget? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's when you get enough to have covered your advance, that's called earning out. And I've heard that 90% of books never earn out. That's not to say that wow. the publisher isn't making money because you can still be profitable and not earn out your advance, mm-hmm. but it's a kind of measure of success if you do earn out your advance. Um, the End Games came out uh, two and a half years ago now, a little, well, closer to three years, and I, I read that most um, debut novels sell around 5,000 copies, and okay. we've sold tens of thousands of copies and nice yeah yeah and like finally now i'm gonna start earning royalties um because we think mr fahrenheit will drive the backlist it'll drive people to the end games okay i guess that is a hidden benefit of writing more books yes it gets very much to go so. through your back catalog yeah cool. so so that means it earned out just recently basically yeah yeah and it wasn't a huge advance it was enough for me to write full-time um but uh, it was very res- respectable advance. Like I, I had, uh, honestly, I had a much higher figure in mind just because you only hear about the big book deals. Yeah. And um, it took me a while to realize, no, this is actually like a good advance. I can quit my job and that sort of thing. Okay, so you got enough of an advance where you could actually quit and dedicate full time to writing that book. Yes, and I don't know if that was actually a smart thing to do. It probably would have been better to go part-time because I got so in my head, I burn out so hard by the end of that book. I couldn't write anything for like six months. Mm. And I actually think um, that was one of the reasons I got on YouTube. You know, I mentioned that I was lonely and I wanted to make friends, but I also had just finished the end games a couple months before that, and I was burnt out from writing, but I wanted to be creative somehow. Yeah. So when you first got this advance, were you still living in West Virginia? No, I was living in North Carolina at the time. Oh, that's right. Because you went to college there. Mm-hmm. And you live in Indiana now. Yes. Was that due to YouTube? Was that due to something else entirely? Um, We knew we wanted to move out of West Virginia. It was just kind of time to move on to another stage in life. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity came up to work with my co-host, Emma Mills, and John and Hank Green. And Emma lived in Indy. And John lived in Indy, so I was like, well, I might as well move there if we're going to shoot the show together. Oh, okay. That's what I did. So, I mean, people are going to want to know, how did you meet John Green? How did you end up working with John Green? Because that's really cool. Yeah. um, People always ask, like, what is John Green like? And if it's like teenage girls, I always say, he picks his nose and eats it uh, (laughs) just to see what they do. (laughs) As far as I know, that is not true. John's like Um, the most down-to-earth guy yeah. At least through, through like the once every two months I get to talk to him, but 
it's yeah he's he doesn't come across like a famous person quote unquote at all yeah, <laughs> yeah he's a he is a very nice guy um i got to meet him because gosh it's kind of a long story my first video i ever put on youtube on my vlog channel was a thoughts from places video mm-hmm. and thoughts from places is a format that he created okay so i tweeted it to him and that night he retweeted it and called it very very good and then shortly after that he subscribed to my channel on the vlogbrothers channel and um a few months later he got an advanced copy of the end games i'm not sure how he got it but he uh read it and he said like this is the book the zombie book I wish I could have written. And he just became like my fairy god brother. Like he just kept (laughs) promoting me. He got me into People Magazine. And we met very, very briefly at VidCon in 2013. Okay. And it was also at VidCon 2013 that How to Adult kind of started becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. Like we, we pitched it to Hank and he really loved the idea. And a couple months later, he... um decided to sign on him and John both as uh, executive producers. So like 10 months after I put up my first YouTube video or actually, yeah, 10 months after that, the vlog brothers were going to produce a show <laughs> that I co-created. It happened very fast. Wow. That is an awesome story. So what is uh, executive producer entail? Cause I don't, have they ever been in a video with you? I know they've guest videos on the channel, but yeah. Um, John, is not as involved in the show as Hank Mm -hmm. um, just because of his other commitments. Um, But for them, uh, executive producers means they fund the show. um, They give us a stipend every month. Um, They help us promote it. They advise us on content. um, And that's pretty much the extent of that business relationship like they fund us they promote us and they advise us okay and in exchange they receive a certain portion of the revenue from the show gotcha and the revenue of the show comes from ads and posters for the most part or are there other things uh ads posters but the most uh profitable thing for us is always an integration oh you mean like a like a brand deal yeah like a brand deal okay cool um we've done amazon twice and warby parker twice and we just did an app and we're going to do blue apron soon Interesting. so it's very helpful i have no idea how to get into that stuff <laughs> well we are um, considering doing it for the podcast and maybe for videos but i i think that it's worth it i mean i think that you should sign you can, you can cut this part out. The <laughs> but like i think that it might help you if you signed with a network like a good one like the collective mm. Um, then you'd be able to get some really good brand deals and make your uh, channel like a sustainable profit center for you. Okay. Yeah, I've always, I don't know, I I guess I've always just assumed that network was a bad idea, but I've heard all the horror stories and I'm guessing there's a a few good ones. Yeah, um, Collective is the one I would recommend. Like Rhett and Link are signed to them and they don't have to be signed to anybody, but they keep re-signing the contracts because they're satisfied with the value they bring. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, that will be something to think about. I'll probably just leave it in here. I like to be as transparent as I can be. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, just cut the part where I told you my social security number. Yeah, I'll cut that one, maybe, if you like pay me half of your salary. (laughs) Got it. it. No problem. Uh, So basically your job right now comes down to writing books and the advance pays for that. And royalties coming soon. Mm-hmm. And then how to adult, right? 
yes, I also have a day job, but I'm not going to have it for much longer because I'm moving on. Um, I okay. work for a nonprofit making educational videos for them. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've seen these. Well, uh, they're more internal for the company itself. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I've had I've had schools ask me to do that before. Like, can you make a essay writing series? And like, maybe on my channel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm guessing you're moving on because Mr. Fahrenheit's going to be taking up your time, right? Um, I'm moving on for a number of reasons. Um, I probably shouldn't go into them. Like, I really mm. love the company, and I wouldn't. I, I I have no ill will towards them. It just is not a very good fit for me. Okay, gotcha. Are you going to be doing a book tour for this new book? No, um, I'm not. It, it's really hard to make book tours worth it. Um, really? Oh yeah. You know, okay. the, they'll cost maybe. Let's say it's a. You know, you go just to one stop. Like you take a flight across the country, and then you, you they put you up in a hotel and they pay for transportation. It can cost like a thousand dollars per stop. And if you sell fifty books, that's a huge success for a book stop. Really? Yeah. Is you know, thousand dollars. Uh, it probably is, I guess. But oh no, no. I mean, like it, young young adult books are rarely over twenty dollars. So, oh, that's true. Yeah. So it definitely uh, wouldn't be thousand dollars profit for sure. No, um, it's the reason you do book tours. If you're like John, you do it because like thousands of people will come see you. Mm -hmm. for, for most people, the reason to do a book tour is so you can get press. Okay. Um, so there's a hook for press. Yeah. Just so you're hoping like some reporter will pick up that you're in town and then do an article on it. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. I would imagine that um, with nonfiction, since the platform is so much more important, a book tour might be more likely to happen. Well, it would probably be a more specialized book tour. Um, okay. Like uh, you might, instead of just going to bookstores, you might go around to different um, chapters of a certain organization. Oh, but, yeah. That makes sense. Actually, I've, and they think nonfiction authors often just do like talks at companies mm -hmm. as kind of a book tour and then also as a way to get paid. Yeah, exactly. I know my friend Steve, he just put out a book um, and he's the founder of nerdfitness.com. So his book tour was he went to like six different cities and he did them at like a parkour gym and um, at all these like cool extreme sports places, basically. So he's like, yeah, show up and we'll do parkour and then you could buy my book and I'll sign it if you want. That's awesome. So that sounded like a pretty cool book tour idea. Yeah, he, he had a good hook there. Um, what I'm going to do instead is do kind of a vlog tour, which I'm very grateful you'll be a part of. Um, oh yeah yeah didn't uh i'm trying to remember who was the first person i saw to do this i think it was uh his name josh he's on your channel josh sunquist josh sunquist that's right yeah yeah he's on your vlog he was on emma's vlog and he was on how to adult i, I don't want to brag josh is awesome and he's my friend but i did it like two years before he so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh did you do it for end games too yeah okay uh does that mean you actually traveled around and did vlogs in person with people or did you do collab videos with yeah. different locations collaborative videos and um just sent people sometimes not even collaborative i would just send people the book and ask them if they'd you know mention it if they wanted it or they, if they wanted to and um sometimes they did it without me asking like john put it in a vlog brothers video which was super helpful oh cool yeah and i'm going to do that i'm just gonna be like this book <laughs> yeah i mean you know i, I don't feel weird about self-promoting because i really believe in what i did and mm -hmm. i think people will enjoy it you know yeah and the cover art's awesome thank seriously, you seriously dude the cover art is fantastic for your book 
I took Thanks. a look at it and I was like, that is amazing. Like the end game says pretty good cover art, but like Mr. Fahrenheit's cover art is I put it on my wall. I might That's I high... might do that. Yeah, I don't know. If you have posters for it or something. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to ask about your writing habits because yes. you're an author. So that's a cool thing to ask about. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I have a kind of default schedule, which is that I wake up, um, I read nonfiction for an hour. Right now I'm reading a book called, what's it called? Stronger, Faster, Better, some combination of books. Oh, is that Charles Duhigg's new book? Yeah, it's really good. Nice. Really good. Um, so I do that. Then I take the dog out mm-hmm. and come back and read a little bit of nonfiction again then take the dog out again then i read fiction for an hour and then i write for uh, um at least 90 minutes okay and so I just, your your immediate thing is to intake in the morning yes okay. it just it's like it primes the pump or something gotcha i probably should i wish i had a way to do that first thing in the morning um, i have so much trouble reading enough because I wake up and most days it's like athletic stuff in the first thing in the morning. And then immediately my brain's like, you need to work. You have a video coming out. And then, oh, no, it's 10 p.m. <laughs> yeah. So finding time to read is difficult. Maybe I should just kind of force myself to do it right after lifting or skating or whatever. And, and just say, I can't work until 10. That might be the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I was really lucky with my day job. They let me work whatever hours I wanted as long as I got stuff done. Mm hmm. Um, and I found out that I'm much more productive in terms of like non-writing work in the afternoon. So okay. sometimes I would just work for a few hours in the afternoon and still get everything done. So yeah. it's about knowing where and when to put your energy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Energy placement is so important. I found that I'm generally useless in the afternoons unless it's like the day before or of a video and I'm frantically editing it to get it out. Yeah. But if yeah. I'm like trying to convince myself to write a script in the afternoon, it, it's just not going to work. Yeah, I, I understand. Know. Is writing in the afternoon stuff for you too? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm usually pretty good at, until one o'clock. Then it's like the blood sugar's bottoming out and mm. I can't do anything. And then I exercise in the afternoon normally. So. Okay. What kind of work do you usually do in the afternoon if you have to? Um, day job stuff or catching up on emails, um, writing future videos, uh, promoting stuff. Um, and then, you know, just like the boring part of running your own business, like doing finances, sending people the money that they need because they worked for you. Um, mm-hmm. hint, hint, Thomas, Thomas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where's my money? I think, I yeah. think I'm actually all paid up. <laughs> you are. Yes, you are. Going back to that networking thing you said though. Um, that was the reason that I initially was like, don't pay me. Yeah. I remember that. It was like, it was like less of like a calculated reciprocity thing and more of just like a, I, I really want to work and do cool things with YouTubers. Like I just so badly wanted to be part of that community. And I guess I was afraid of like transactionalizing my first big relationship with a YouTube channel too much. You know, I totally understood that and I like I could see what you were how you were feeling because I felt that way. Like I remember the first VidCon I went to, I was so nervous because I wanted it so bad. I just mm-hmm. wanted so much to be accepted into that community. Um and I felt like I the fact that you offered to not be paid was enough for me. I was like this is a good dude. So, um I was like I and also I just wanted to pay you, you know. <laughs> um because I, uh, 
like it was cleaner, but also I was like, this is a good guy. I'm going to work with him again, I'm sure. Cool. So the last question I had was, um, and I mean, we did an entire video on this on the Hollywood Adult channel, but how many rejections have you received for your books and how do you deal with them? Oh, goodness. Um, It certainly dozens. And um, even after you get published, you get rejections. Like we've gotten rejected from movie deals. uh, And, you know, it's it feels like a really harsh rejection when you get a internationally published bad review, Mm -hmm. which I've gotten. Um, I've gotten some. It's so funny. Like the end games uh, book list, which is a major magazine in publishing. They said this is the best zombie novel of its kind ever and then another one another major magazine said not even zombie fans will be able to finish this book really yeah yeah it um and then there was another kind of mean-spirited review for mr fahrenheit and again book list was like this is amazing ray bradbury etc um so what you have to do is kind of i i call it putting yourself in a different room like you can't um it's not that you can't read reviews. Sometimes they can be helpful. But you can't let that become your barometer for what's good work and not good work. Mm. What, you, what you have to do is figure out whose respect you want. Like, um, Because if you try to please everyone, it'll just be a disaster and you'll feel terrible all the time. No, like, Trust me, I know th- that for a fact. But... Um, if you figure out like a couple people whose respect you really want to win, then you have a much better shot at success and you'll be a lot happier. And sometimes it's just like the respect you want is from like your spouse, say, like you just really want them to love the book. Or it's like for a couple of your heroes, like you really want them to say something nice. It's not always going to work out, um, of course, but I, I just think it's so important to... Um, like narrow your focus, which expands the target, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. You're kind of like zooming in, so it's just easier to land on, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's applicable to just creative work in general. I found that the bigger my audience has gotten, the easier it is to try to cast the net over all of them when writing something, Yeah, which just makes what you're writing generic and unable to be connected to with you know any individual person yeah it's like there's there are commonalities between all these people subscribed but not all of them are the same people and exactly you can't write for all of them so yeah it gets tough where it's like man how many people in my audience will get this reference i should just be like i don't care because i'm making the reference it's funny to me and i'm sure somebody else has seen it before yeah <laughs> totally um i mean you have to as you know making things is really hard Mm-hmm. Um, it's like emotionally hard. It's psychologically exhausting sometimes. So if you can't enjoy the process, like you should do something else. I like, I say that with love. Like if you can do something, if you can not create stuff and still be happy, then go do that because <laughs> you'll like have a satisfying life. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I um, think there's so much fulfillment in doing it though. Oh, I agree. I've always been um, a builder. Yeah. Yep. I think we're, uh, like in that Mm -hmm. so mike uh this podcast is going to come out april 4th when is your book coming out my book is coming out april 19th but it is available for pre-order as we record this in march so yeah and i will have all the pertinent links up in the show notes so people can go check it out and um if people want to connect with you or watch your videos where else can they go on the internet 
You can go to youtube.com slash tmikemartin, youtube.com slash learnhowtoadult. And if you go to my main website, which is just tmichaelmartin.com, it'll have links to all my other social media stuff. Cool. All right, Michael, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, dude. All right, guys, that about does it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to this interview. Hopefully you found it informational or entertaining, and maybe a few of you are now going to become published authors in the future. That would be awesome to see. Once again, you can find the show notes over at CIGpodcast.com. Find the episode 102 link on the page. And as a reminder, if you're interested, check out Mike's book, Mr. Fahrenheit. comes out April 19th. I'm probably going to do a reminder on the channel because I'm really enjoying it and just want to help a friend out as well. And that is it for this episode. So until next week, stay cute.